Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. The American Civil Liberties Union is celebrating its 100th birthday this year. For a century now, the ACLU has been one of the nation's leading legal and social justice organizations. Some could argue it's never been busier. In the last three years, the ACLU has filed more than 100 lawsuits challenging the Trump administration on everything from the president's travel ban to limits on transgender military service to assaults on voting rights. Right now, in a Reset exclusive, the ACLU of Illinois is introducing its its next top litigator. The new Roger Pascal legal director for the ACLU of Illinois is Nusrat Chaudhary. She formerly served as deputy director of the ACLU's racial justice program. And Nusrat is especially excited about her new role as it brings her back to her hometown. Nusrat, congratulations and welcome back to Illinois. Thank you so much for having me. So you grew in, up in the Chicago area. What does it mean for you to come back to Illinois? Well, it's a real coming home to my family and my community. I was born here in the city of Chicago and raised in the suburbs in Northbrook, Illinois. And I come from a proud family of immigrants. My parents immigrated from the country that is now Bangladesh. And we have aunts and uncles, extended family relatives, all of whom have been a supportive community as we've made our way in this country. And so to me, Chicago really symbolizes the hope and opportunity that is the best of America, while also reminding me of the challenges that we went through as an immigrant family, as people of color and Muslims being raised here in the city of Chicago. How do you think your experience in Chicago and the Midwest um, informs how you do your work at the ACLU? I think that who I am and the community I come from is so integral to my desire to work with a team of people dedicated to advancing civil rights and civil liberties for all. So growing up in the suburbs, we were one of the first families of color where we lived. We had names that were difficult to pronounce. We came from a country uh, with foods and smells and cuisines that were different. We also had a different faith, one that was at the time in the late 70s and early 80s not as common in the in this area. And so I think growing up and finding that acceptance in Chicago amongst a diverse community of people who really celebrate difference and accept people for who they are, but also experiencing how hard it was when we found that resistance, whether it was being called names at school, experiencing vandalism in our home because of the color of our skin, being treated differently from by law enforcement, and especially after the horrible terrorist attacks of 9-11, seeing how my mother, who wears hijab, was treated differently and badly by people she had known for years. These sorts of experiences showed me that we all have to take the fight for civil rights and civil liberties into our own hands. And that's part of the reason why I am totally dedicated to using the tools and the power and the potential of the law as an instrument for social justice to really realize the values of equality and dignity and liberty that all of us have the right to experience. Much of your work so far has focused on racial justice. Why did that area of law resonate with you? 
You know, I think as a person of color, you know, race has always been uh, something that you cannot avoid, right? As people of color, the world constantly shows us that we are different. And I think what I also found and have, have want to replicate is that sense of celebration that people of color bring so much to this country, immigrants and other marginalized people as well, bring so much that what we need to do is advance that kind of celebration and fight the injustice that denies the opportunity and dignity to people of color. And I think that's been true in my life, and I've seen that in my work, both working on behalf of communities that look like me, but also communities that are really different. You know, representing people who are black and Latinx against, you know, cities, whose law enforcement treat them differently simply because of how they look, representing people who are challenging the violation of their basic rights to liberty and fair treatment by our court system simply because they don't have money to pay. I mean, I think that these sorts of practices drive systemic racial injustice in this country, but they are so solvable and so contrary to who we really are when we are at our best. You've participated or directed quite a bit of litigation, and among those cases is the use of debtors' prisons in South Carolina. Tell us about that case. Well, debtors' prisons, I think, came to the national attention after the horrible events in Ferguson revealed that that revenue generation, what was driving policing in that city. And what we've seen at the ACLU and in our affiliates across the country is that Ferguson wasn't alone that there are debtors' prisons across the country. In South Carolina and Lexington County, which is one of the richest counties in the state, in one year alone, more than 1,000 people were facing arrest and jail simply because they couldn't pay traffic tickets or fines for other low-level offenses. And in that one year, at least 415 people lost their liberty, including my client, Shinda Brown, who was a mother of children in school, got two traffic tickets, totaling a whopping set of fines, more than $2,400, told the judge that she couldn't pay that much money, and the judge nevertheless required her to pay $100 a month, even when she explained that she could pay 50 but 100 was just going to be too hard because she wasn't getting paid appropriately by her employer, a fast food franchise that, whose checks were bouncing because they weren't doing well. Well, Ms. Brown actually made the first five of her payments, and when she finally missed one payment, because she just couldn't keep it together, her son was ill, and she just couldn't make that balancing act work any longer. On a Saturday morning, sheriff's deputies arrived in her home. She asked her son, her 13-year-old son, to take the garbage out so he wouldn't see his mother get arrested and taken to jail. And she was then jailed for 57 days. So this is a jurisdiction, Lexington County, that has arrested people, single women of color, mothers of color, for simply because they can't afford to pay minor fines and fees. Actually, the fines and fees are quite big, but for minor offenses, taking away their liberty, their ability to be parents to their children and to care for their families, simply because it wants the money. And we filed a lawsuit bringing 14th Amendment claims challenging this system for violating the rights to fairness and equal treatment in the court system, as well as the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. Um, that case has survived numerous challenges. Lexington County has, has fought that case uh, since we filed it more than two years ago. And at this point, um, we are contemplating a settlement in that case. That said, I think that begs the question of why fight so hard when you're treating people this way in other jurisdictions where I've brought suit in Biloxi, Mississippi, for example, where we challenged a debtor's prison, the city took a very different approach and said, we want to become a model for how to actually show 
the state how to treat people fairly. And I think that's the kind of response that we want to see to these sorts of lawsuits. Well, you've also worked on stop and frisk policies in cities like Milwaukee and Democratic presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg, who's who's rising in the polls, is taking some heat for this policy during his time as New York's mayor. Here's what he had to say back in November before he officially announced his run for president. Now, hindsight is twenty twenty. But as crime continued to come down as we reduced stops, and as it continued to come down during the next administration, to its credit, I now see that we could and should have acted sooner and acted faster to cut the stops. I wish we had. I'm sorry that we didn't. But I can't change history. However, today, I want you to know that I realized back then I was wrong. And I'm sorry. I'm curious how you connect these these issues, debtors' prisons, stop and frisk, up to the larger national conversation we're having about policing and what policing should look like. You're absolutely right that they are connected because what we see is that too sorry. often law enforcement are treating people of color differently simply because of the color of their skin or the accent they speak in not because of what they've actually done. And then once people of color are in this legal system, they're further penalized when they don't have money, which people of color disproportionately don't, because of decades-long, well-established evidence showing that there are tremendous racial and ethnic gaps in wealth, unemployment, and poverty in this country. So this is a cycle that we need to break, and litigation is one of those tools. And really what we need to do is take revenue generation out of the equation. You know, our law enforcement should not be policing and issuing tickets to generate revenue, which is necessarily going to distort the way policing happens. And this is why I mentioned Ferguson earlier. You know, Ferguson is every town USA. What's happened there is prevalent throughout the country, including in Illinois and Chicago. You're hearing a Reset exclusive. The ACLU of Illinois has just announced its new top litigator live on our show. After years as one of the national ACLU's racial justice experts, Nusrat Choudhury is back in her hometown to assume the role of the Roger Pascal Legal Director for the ACLU of Illinois. She's with us now to outline her agenda for Chicago and the state. That brings us back to a story uh, that has gotten a lot of attention just in, in recent weeks, back around the issue of police harassment. And, and this is the story story of Jalen Butler. Let's listen. Jalen Butler of the Eastern Illinois University's swim team is suing several police officers claiming they violated his rights in a stop last February. The ACLU of Illinois filed the federal lawsuit against six officers from several departments in the Quad Cities area. As we heard there, your office represents Jalen Butler. Lay out the details of this story for people who are unfamiliar with what happened. So Jalen is a young man who's the only black member of the swim team at Eastern Illinois University. And he was returning from a conference championship meet on a bus with his teammates. I believe the meet was in South Dakota and they were driving through the Quad Cities area. They pulled over on Interstate 80 and just to stretch their legs, kind of get some fresh air. And a coach actually asked Jalen to take a photo of, of a sign, a road sign that was there just to, and to post it on the team's social media account as a memento of sorts. And suddenly, Jalen saw a line of SUVs and police vehicles pull up next to him. And within seconds, really, he was told to drop down to his knees, and he did. He, he immediately 
raised his hands, dropped his cell phone because he remembered the instruction that his father had given him when he was young, that when you see police, you do everything you can to de-escalate and show that you're not doing anything wrong. So he dropped his phone. He dropped on his knees. It was clear he was not armed or doing anything. And within seconds, police came and actually pushed his face to the ground. And one officer pulled out a gun and threatened to blow his head off. And his coach and the bus driver started protesting. They came over and they tried to explain, you know, he's a member of the swim team. He's not doing anything wrong. And even though the police should have been aware, and I believe were aware, that he was not the suspect they were apparently looking for, they continued to detain him and actually took him to the station. So this is an incident that just illustrates what we've been talking about, that people of color across the country and across the state and in this city are treated differently because of the color of their skin. And this is the result of longstanding biases that we know are prevalent throughout the country, whether those biases are explicit or whether they're implicit biases that we all have, as well as the structures that drive this kind of differential treatment, the lack of proper training and accountability when officers treat people wrong because of the color of their skin. And that's what Jalen is looking for here. He is looking for accountability. And without that accountability, we don't actually end systemic racial injustice in the legal system. Well, the ACLU has long been known as a champion for First Amendment rights. Just back in November, uh, the ACLU of Illinois sent a letter to the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, or DCASE, calling on them to respect the First Amendment rights of protesters uh, in a park. We're at this time of deep division in the nation. Uh, Much of the speech people hear is speech that's offensive to them. What is the ACLU's stance on First Amendment protections in this moment? The ability to speak and dissent is critically important. And sometimes the messages are very difficult to hear and often painful to hear. But it is critical to make sure that those messages get out there because what we see time and time again in this country is that rights to speech are often weaponized against marginalized communities. And this is something that I've actually worked on at the National ACLU and I think is a problem that probably affects people in Illinois as well, where law enforcement often target activists because of the types of messages they are expressing, you know, protesting police violence, protesting, you know, violence against people of color. We've we've seen in recent years the FBI issuing an intelligence report identifying a so-called threat po- posed by this fictitious group of black identity extremists. Law enforcement have debunked this. They have also spoken out against this report as totally flawed and based on nothing but fiction. So this importance of making sure that people can be heard and dissent and speak is critical also, I think, to the fight for racial justice, as well as other viewpoints, even viewpoints that are abhorrent to our own. Well, we said at the top the ACLU turned 100 years old last month. Where do you see the organization's role what role it plays in the public discourse as it moves into the next year and and beyond. We at the ACLU of Illinois are and need to continue fighting against the wholesale assault on civil rights and civil liberties that has swept the country since the Trump administration came into power. I mean, that assault on immigrants, the assault on transgender people, um, the restrictions on protest rights, continued racial profiling, these are things that we need to keep speaking out against and being in communication and dialogue with partners and allies, community groups, to figure out how to use our resources to amplify the voices of folks who are less powerful and make sure that we have a 
full-scale assault on those threats to our liberties. And at the same time, we also need to show that Illinois is different and better, that this is a place where we pass one of the most comprehensive reproductive rights acts in the nation, that those rights actually mean something, that we have respect for human rights under state law in this state, and that applies to people who are marginalized regardless of their sexual orientation, their gender identity, race, ethnicity, religion, you name it. And I think we have the ability to show that we are a model. And I think the ACLU of Illinois, along with our partners and communities, need to be fighting that fighting that fight full-on aggressively when we need to, and also showing that we are better than others. That's Nusrat Chodhuri. She's the new Roger Pascal Legal Director for the ACLU of Illinois. She comes back to Chicago from the National ACLU, where she served as Deputy Director of its Racial Justice Program. Nusrat, welcome back to Illinois, and thanks for making the announcement on our show. Thank you so much for having me. And that's today's Reset. Join us again tomorrow for more conversations around the news that's important to you and the people working to make a difference in and around Chicago. Until then, I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.